Let's open the Scriptures to the New Testament, letter of Paul to the Romans, Romans 5, and then Ephesians chapter 5 after that. So Romans 5 in the Pew Bible, page 1198, 1198. We'll read the first 11 verses. And these readings are in connection with our text in Genesis 3, where we'll deal with God's pronouncement of judgment over the woman and the man. And that judgment, of course, brings suffering into the world. And then Paul in Romans 5 speaks about suffering and how, that, how God turns it to our benefit. Chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance." And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, <clears throat> where the same apostle instructs us about <clears throat> life in the home. Well, that's on page 1245 in the Pew Bible. And this will connect also with God's punishment over uh, husbands and wives. Chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man." knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Please turn with me to Genesis 3. We'll be focusing on the verses 16, <clears throat> 16 through 20. So we've been dealing in the recent sermons on this passage with the judgment of God over the serpent. That was the verses 14 and 15. And now we come to the judgment of God over the woman and the man. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. We're going to pause there. That'll keep us busy this morning and the rest, God willing, next week. In response to the preaching, we'll sing Psalm 130, the stanzas 2 and 4, where the Lord assures us of grace and redemption in the face of sin. Psalm 130, the stanzas 2 and 4. <clears throat> Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Last time, we heard all about the enmity which the Lord has placed between the woman and the serpent, that is, between the followers of God and the followers of Satan. That antithesis, that, that ongoing struggle, though ultimately a blessing because it, it keeps us away from and keeps us from joining in with the devil, that ongoing struggle will not be easy. The serpent, says Genesis 3.15, will bite the heel of God's people and in doing so cause considerable anguish, suffering. And even though we know that Jesus has crushed the head of Satan with His death on the cross, yet so long as this present life continues, we can only expect to be attacked by the devil. So every day we still need to pray as Jesus taught us, deliver us from the evil one. And yet this, this enmity, it's not the only result from Adam's sin. We've not only gained an enemy in the devil, but in fact all of God's good creation has turned against man. Where once there was blessing throughout creation, now there is curse. And everything around us, in fact, everything within us humans, lies under God's judgment for our sin. We need saving not just from the devil, but even more from God's wrath, God's curse against our sin. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. The Lord imposes consequences on man's sin. The Lord imposes consequences on man's sin. We'll see the gloom, the grace, and the gratitude involved in that. So in our text, after the Lord curses the serpent, He turns now to the woman and to the man. And in all of this, very, very clearly, the Lord is acting as judge. He's pronouncing sentence upon the guilty parties. And I'd like you to notice how He judges each party separately. We might have expected that God would deal with the man and the woman as, as a unit and address them together. After all, it was only in chapter 2 that he had declared husband and wife to be one. The two shall become one. Yet, the Lord chooses to address each individually. That means, brothers and sisters, that each person, male or female, husband or wife, everybody individually has a responsibility to God. And you and I, each of us personally, will answer to the Lord. Are we, are we fully aware of that? When it comes time for Judgment Day, we can't hide behind our wife. We can't uh, stand behind the shoulders of our husband. Each of us will be there to give an account to the Lord. Now, when the Lord speaks to the woman, to Adam's wife, the what he says is not very lengthy, but it sure is hauntingly powerful, isn't it? 
Every woman here can relate to these words, this, this judgment, especially every wife and mother. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. It's painful to read that, isn't it? Any sister here that's given birth especially can, with her testimony, tell us that God's judgment is still fully in effect. Even with all the medical advances of today, childbirth remains a difficult thing. It remains painful. So we're still today dealing with cons the consequences of our sin, our original sin. And right there is a truth we should think about for a minute. Sin's consequences, they stay with us often a lot longer than the sin itself, and even well after they've been forgiven. You know, we have this saying, and we're kind of fond of saying it, forgive and forget. What we mean is that when you forgive somebody their sin, you don't bring it up anymore, you don't talk about it anymore, you, you, you forget about it. And there's a lot of truth in that. We absolutely should not bring up a sin that's been forgiven, and we should not Bring, uh, bring it up to make a person feel guilty because their guilt is gone. And yet, we shouldn't go too far the other way. Being forgiven does not take away instantly consequences of our sin. Remember how God had come into the garden. He had come, we saw last time, not in condemnation, but He had come in mercy. The Lord had chosen to curse the serpent but He had given the promise of deliverance to the woman, the deliverance through the seed of the woman. In other words, God chose to bring forgiveness to Adam in the promise of that seed to come. And yet, for all of that, the Lord did not remove the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. Everything didn't instantly go back to the way it was before. And so it is with us today. When, even when we repent of our sins... When we ask God for forgiveness in the blood of Jesus, then as we did a few moments ago, we, we need to be very clear that the Lord does forgive, absolutely 100% for sure. But the, the consequences, the results of our wrongdoing, they very, may very well linger for a while, even quite a while. Those lingering results or consequences, they... They make us conscious of our sin. We remember our wrongs so very often, don't we? Think of Psalm 25 where David says, sins of youth. You know, he's thinking about the sins he committed when he was a younger guy. He says, Lord, don't remember them against me. David remembered the sins of his youth. Maybe you remember the sins of your youth. Sometimes we have trouble with that, struggle with the feeling that our sins are not forgiven. And that's an awful feeling. That can be one consequence of our sin. Another consequence is when someone, for example, when someone repents of a sin, say the sin of addiction, and they, they want to renew their life, we help them. We give them support. We help reintegrate them into church life or work life or whatever is needed. We strengthen faith through prayer and Scripture reading. But through it all, we remain acutely aware 
of that sin, right? We're careful not to place such a person back into a a position of temptation. For example, you don't invite an alcoholic, a recovering alcoholic, to your birthday party and then bring out all kinds of alcohol, do you? Or take another example, if someone is genuinely sorry for sexual sin, then there too we must gently restore such a person into the body of Christ. But we we can never leave such a person alone in a vulnerable situation. We want to lead such a person out of sin, not back into it. So what I want to communicate, brothers and sisters, is that being forgiven of our sin It no longer means that we we don't have a weakness in that area. We can't forget it in an absolute sense. Forgive and forget may be an overstatement. We have to forgive, absolutely, and facilitate, facilitate the rehabilitation of our brother and sister. So sin has consequences, lingering consequences. And the first consequence that the Lord speaks of is well known, this consequence to the woman, pain in childbearing. That certainly means the increase in physical pain, but it also includes the emotional pain of the heart. The word pain can be translated equally as sorrow. So it's not just the pain of of the the physical kind. I will multiply your sorrow, what's going on inside. And then it refers not only to the time of pregnancy and delivery, let's say that that nine-month period, the Hebrew word for childbearing has in mind the entire process from conception to birth and even beyond. Everything a woman goes through that has to do with childbearing, her monthly cycle and everything involved in that, from first to last, the woman will experience pain and sorrow, and every woman here knows that far better than I do. From the first menstrual cramp to the moment of birth to the last hot flash and beyond, the process of bearing children is by the Lord's imposition, filled with grief, filled with sorrow, filled with pain. And that's just if things follow the the normal course of events. For some women experience the added sorrow of not receiving any children or receiving a smaller number of children than they had hoped for. That would be the sorrow of infertility. And that's, that sorrow was not unknown among us, is it? How many tears haven't been shed by sisters in the Lord who would dearly love to have a child or another child, and they can't? Right in the book of Genesis itself, we have that kind of sorrow on the pages of, of the Bible. Think of Sarah, wife of Abram, who was barren for decades and all the pain that she experienced. Think of Rebecca, who was barren for a lengthy period and for whom husband Isaac had to specially pray. Then there was Rachel, who was so filled with grief that she cried out to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Ever since the fall, the woman lives with the consequences of her sin, and it is miserable. 
The other consequence mentioned at the end of verse 16 is no better. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's been a lot of talk about what that really means. I mean, what's meant by desire? What kind of desire is that? Some say that's sexual desire. This is then a woman's sexual desire for her husband, as if to say that although the woman will experience a lot of grief in childbearing and all that that involves, yet, despite the pain, she will still desire to have sexual union with her husband. That's how some read that. But if that is the case, brothers and sisters, it's hard to see how that is a form of punishment either for the woman or for the man. Isn't that what they were created for in the beginning, to come together as husband and wife in union? And does anybody here consider a wife's sex drive to be a bad thing? The whole context is punishment. A better interpretation is to see this desire not as a sexual desire, but rather as a desire to rule over the husband. And then that makes sense out of the next phrase, and he will rule over you. There's a contrast there. You could also translate with the word but and have it read this way, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. The woman will, and this is contrary to the way she was created, she will want to have the upper hand. She will want to dominate her husband, but the husband will emerge from that conflict and have the upper hand over her. There will be a clash of wills, and that is judgment, isn't it? Look with me for a moment at Genesis 4, verse 7. I think we can do a little exegesis together and see how this fits. Chapter 4, verse 7, just the next chapter, still Moses writing. It's in the near context. He uses the same two verbs. And here we have a more clear text helping us understand a less clear text. So the Lord approaches Cain, who's jealous of his brother Abel. Verse 6, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Here it comes. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see the contrast? It's pretty clear there. Cain, or sin wants to have the upper hand in Cain's life. But the Lord says, Cain, you must master that sinful desire and say no to it. Of course, Cain doesn't do that, but that's what the Lord advises and exhorts him to do. Well, in the same way, coming back to our text, the wife will want to rule over her husband, but in the end, the husband will rule over her. It's a distortion of that creation relationship between husband and wife. As we saw previously, Eve had once before usurped Adam's role as head, and now, as part of her punishment, she will continually want to have that position again, but in the end of things, the husband will rule over her. 
And that's a forceful word, that word rule. Gone is the pledge to love and cherish. And in its place is the judgment to rule and to dominate. That earlier glorious, beautiful, harmonious fellowship in the garden between husband as head and wife as helper, it has become now a twisted, perverted thing on account of our sin. From this point forward, there would ever be an an inner tension between husband and wife. There will be a clash of the most personal relationship we have on earth. Now, many people think of verse 16, those words at the end of 16, as applying only to the woman. But when you think about it, it's not just a burden for for the wife, is it? Let's not forget that Adam is equally affected here. It's a punishment for him too. I mean, man was created as as head over his wife, but he was not created to domineer. He was not created to rule her against her will. That was never the design. The picture in Genesis 3 here now is, is master and slave, which goes against what God had created in the beginning. Woman was created as helper, which we saw was, is an honorable place. A helper, not a servant. And when Paul commands the husband, as we read in Ephesians 5, the husband who has been redeemed now in Christ, then he doesn't say to the husband, a husband, a rule your wife. Oh, no. He says, husband, love your wife. That's what you were created to do. Love your wife. Since the fall... You've been busy ruling her because of that sinful clash. But husbands, now that you've been redeemed in Christ, love your wife like Christ loves the church. That's redemption, you see. And the command to wives is submit. The husbands are not commanded to force their wives to submit. The husbands aren't even commanded to do anything with submission. Their command, love. Wives command, submit. Which Christian husband finds any pleasure in in keeping his wife somehow subservient? I mean, that is an unpleasant situation to say the least. Ruling over your wife in in a situation of competition is a matter of God's punishment. But if you have been freed from that punishment in Jesus, won't you, brothers, be the head of your wife with the utterly selfless and sacrificial love of Jesus? And won't your wife respond to that by dropping the the pursuit of authority and instead voluntarily submitting herself to your Christ-like lead? Then, husbands, your authority will not hurt or demean, but it will heal, and it will build up and bless, just like Christ's authority builds up the church. Well, those consequences then are announced to the woman, but God turns now to the man in verse 17, and we see that his punishment is equally filled with gloom. The Lord says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Cursed is the ground. The ground, the ground was heavily involved with man's specific calling. The Lord had said, till the ground, till the soil, cultivate the earth, exercise dominion over the soil, over the earth, and over all the animals that are on the earth. But now that ground, that soil is not going to cooperate anymore. Just as the woman will have pain in her in bearing children, so the man will have pain in scratching out a living from the earth. Instead of blessing, instead of receiving the blessing of plentiful crops, the man will have to contend with thorns and thistles. Instead of the pleasant tilling of an arable soil, it will be back-breaking work by the sweat of the brow. And is that still not the case today? It's true, of course, that we have received from God's hand many technological advances to help us till the earth. We have our excavators and our dozers and our bobcats and other heavy machinery to do our slugging. We've got also computers and medical advances and much more to ease the burden of this curse. But even with all these advances, brothers and sisters, do you not still have to work and work hard? The earth doesn't so easily give of its fruits, does it? Farmers and landscapers still have to spray for bugs and weeds every year. And if the weather is off, by even a little, a whole crop can be ruined. But other jobs outside of Agriculture are still the same. If you work in manufacturing, then the work is often tiring and laborious, often boring. And that's when things go well. It doesn't take much for things to go poorly, for things to break down, for workers to make mistakes. And then there's those in management positions, dealing with employees and trying to guide the business along. I mean, will any manager say, my job, it's a piece of cake. In the management jobs or in ownership jobs, there's the constant pressure of managing people who have all of their own needs, of drumming up more business, of solving employee problems, of worrying whether you have enough funds to write out paychecks, chasing down unpaid bills. I mean, nothing comes easy in this life. Sin and its consequences has its tentacles spread out into every facet of life for the man, just as it does in the life of the woman, until in the end it brings us right back to the very soil from which we were taken. We sang it from Psalm 90. Moses writes a psalm of wisdom in which he reminds us, inspired by the Spirit, he reminds us, you are dust. The Lord's anger lies over this fallen world. You are dust, man. Woman, and to dust you shall return. Every day in the, the obituaries in the newspaper or online, they're filled with people returning to the dust, seniors and middle-aged, men and women and children, yes, even babies. There is not a day that goes by that another soul doesn't succumb to death. Psalm 90 gives us the picture. We're born in pain. We live in pain. We mostly die in pain. And when you think about it, beloved, it's a, 
it's a picture that can leave you in a deep, deep depression. This life, all on its own since the fall, is a miserable, gloomy affair. Until we see the way out through the light of God's grace. For as oppressive and gloomy as these judgments are, they're actually more, they're lighter than we deserve, aren't they? That would be the first ray of light poking through here. The punishment we deserved is not the punishment we got. Imagine for a moment that the Lord had given what we deserved. He had every right to do so. Earlier, He had announced the punishment. He said, on the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. So Adam and Eve, and with them the whole human race, we, we should have been goners. We should have been done, finished, kaput, destroyed in death. And yet the consequences that God comes with and imposes are something quite less than that, aren't they? Notice in verse 14 how God directly curses the serpent and Satan who is inside the serpent. But nowhere does God directly curse the man or the woman, though that's exactly what they deserved. The ground is cursed on account of man. A woman's own body will betray her with pain and sorrow, but no curse falls on the head of the woman or the man. And in that, brothers and sisters, we should see and understand there is grace flowing. They should have been wiped off the face of the earth, but there they are, spared and standing in the garden. They are even promised redemption in the crushing of Satan, and they are brought back into a fellowship with their God. And the punishment that God announces, you have to see that there's, there's hope embedded in that punishment. It's a promise of salvation even in the midst of that, that sorrow. He says to Eve, in pain you will give birth to children. And we tend to focus on that sorrow and pain, and to be sure, it's miserable. Take nothing away from it. But I want you to look at that judgment again, brothers and sisters, and see the miracle there. What miracle? The miracle is this, that though there will be pain, there will be children. There will be life. You see, the punishment that they deserved was to have the womb closed, to have the heart stopped, to have the lungs shut down and collapse. But the Lord says, giving birth, oh yes, it will bring you pain, but you will give birth, Eve. Life will spring forth from your body, and from those babies, eventually the Savior will come. And it's the same with the man. The same hope is there. The earth, it's going to give him all kinds of grief as he toils over it, but it will produce food for him. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food, but at least you will have food to eat. On the one hand, God's punishment makes us experience a great deal of bitterness in this broken world. Every day we feel the weight of what we have done in Adam. We feel the burden of our transgression. And yet, through the midst of it, life does go on. That's because of God's promise. 
The seed of the woman will arise, and indeed, He has arisen. His name is Jesus Christ. He has crushed the head of the serpent. It's now only a matter of time before the consequences disappear. In Christ, we begin to feel the reversal, already now, the reversal of God's judgment. Maybe you noticed that coming out in Ephesians 5, which we read. In Christ, God is working to reverse the curse. The marriage relationship, cleansed by Christ's blood and renewed by Christ's Spirit, it's no longer one of acrimony, of tension, but it's one of willing submission and sacrificial love. That's the undoing of the curse. The parent-child relationship that Paul talks about, it's no longer one where, where children disrespect their parents or live in fear of their parents, where fathers exasperate their children. It is one of, of respect, of endearment, and it's one of love from parents, loving discipline from father to son. And the employer-employee relationship, what, what Paul is describing there as master-slave, it's not filled with, with strife. It's filled with care and concern and heartfelt service. Jesus has taken on our curse, and so He begins now to remove the consequences of our sin for you and me and every Christian, brothers and sisters. Everyday life is different because of Christ. And when you think about this whole matter of punishment a little further, doesn't God's judgment over sin also have this gracious effect that it, it pushes you and me, it drives you and me, it forces you and me to do what? To run to Jesus, the Savior. Just imagine if there were no punishments or judgments from God. If Genesis 3 verse 16 and 17 hadn't been imposed upon us, if there was no pain or sorrow, would you and I seek out the Savior? Even though there was no peace with God, would we, would we run to Jesus? We're already slow in running to Him as it is, aren't we? But when we experience the effects of man's sin, of our sin in general, when the sorrow of life and the grief mounts up, when the cycle of death and decay hits us smack in the face, we then go to the only place, the only source of help, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only Christ Jesus can reverse the curse and give us peace with God. That's also what we picked up in Romans 5, where Paul writes about suffering. Suffering as a child of God, it has, of course, many negative things associated with it, but there's a positive effect. There's a net positive. Verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces something. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Hope is confidence in salvation. It's even so that we 
take joy in our sufferings because, because God uses them to grow our Christ-like character and bring us closer to the Father, closer to God. Is that not a blessing for which we can be thankful? We once cut ourselves off from God in the garden, joining the alliance with Satan. But now, through faith in Jesus, the instrument of suffering, the Lord uses that to draw us more and more back to Himself. And that leads to gratitude, even in the midst of tears. That's how Adam saw it. For the first time, we have him speak or act in verse 20, the first time since God revealed His grace by cursing the snake but easing up on man's punishment. We read in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like a lot at first. I mean, we're used to calling her Eve, and we maybe think very little of this verse, but it shows that Adam was listening to the Lord intently, and Adam understood the mercy that was coming to him. By their actions, Adam and Eve had brought upon themselves death, but the Lord had intervened to promise them life. Adam knew he had no right to father a child. He knew that Eve had no right to conceive to give birth, no right to produce offspring, for both she and he had forfeited their lives. But Adam heard the promise, and he understood he and she would live, and a Savior would come from her line. She would not give birth to a race destined only for eternal death. She would be the mother of all the living from Adam and Eve would come a people who would truly be alive in the Lord, who would know of eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ. Though Adam was about to and on the cusp of entering a state of gloom and suffering such as he had never known, yet he entered it in faith, even in thankful hope, she shall be called Eve, mother of the living. Call her Eve. Brothers and sisters, let's you and I undertake our daily lives in that same hope that Adam expressed, even a stronger hope than he had. Because in that long line of Eve's descendants, a child did come who was given another name. The angel said, he shall be named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That seed of Eve has saved you and me from sin's guilt and its consequences. The consequences in your childbearing, the consequences in your marriage, in your work, wherever there is a thorn in life, wherever there is a thistle, Jesus is working to undo that. The curse has been shattered. The judgment is fading away, and one day it will disappear altogether. So with that certainty in your heart, beloved, with that joy in your soul, go ahead, go into life's 
duties and challenges and tackle them wholeheartedly because your Savior is with you every step of the way until the day he comes back on the clouds. The day he comes back to to finish that work of perfecting us and renewing the earth so that it will be what it was always meant to be, a sinless wonderland. Amen.